welcome everybody. Today I'm talking with Chris, who is a inquisitive explorer of ideas. Uh, we're going to be talking about some mythology, mysticism, and who knows what might pop up. So welcome, Chris. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Great to be okay. here. Yeah, thanks for coming. A uh, couple of announcements real quick. Just want to remind everybody that the Discord is open to everyone, anyone and everyone. Whoever enjoys having conversations of, of, this, of this sort. Um, also politics, philosophy, science, whatever it may be. Uh, and then if you didn't notice already, I did go ahead with a name change. So we're now going by the Dialogue Den just kind of as a reference to a community of people who just want to gather and talk about ideas. So uh, anyway, Chris, if you don't mind, let's just start by getting a brief background of your religious upbringing and kind of what you believe now. Well, I, I grew up LDS and always enjoyed having the truth with a capital T I I was always the guy raising his hand in Sunday school with with the answers because I felt it was really important to have the answers. Um, there's a I mean when you're commanded to choose the right, it's kind of based on having to know what's right underneath it, and so I felt that kind of intensely as a kid. And then I um, as a teenager. I came across a Richard Dawkins book. Um, I, I actually had a couple of, um, like a, a great grandfather and a great, great uncle, you know, two brothers who were blind and they would, I, I've, I've grown up hearing stories about how they, they built their, their homes together. And when they were children, they took apart their father's tractor to see how it worked. And when he got mad at them and, made them put it back together. They were able to do it. They, they were very clever and inquisitive. And even though they couldn't see, they were, um, you know, they were very, very interested in the world around them. And one of them went on to work on watches. So when I came across Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker, mm. I was intrigued, but I didn't know what it was about. And so I checked it out of the library and I read about how um, read about how evolution works when I hadn't been taught that in school in the same way. Yeah. And as someone who loved truth, I recognized it when I saw it and <clears throat> it kind of started my, my gradual breakdown of, of the things I previously had been certain were the truth. And that was a little bit shocking for me, but it set the stage for, you know, being willing to question the underlying principles that that I assumed were true. Yeah, something really resonated with me what you said because I'm also ex-Mormon, um, and it really was that whole like capital T truth. Like we know this church to be true. We know all of this is the truth, and growing up um as i left the church it that still impacted me and still today like that seems to be what i care about the most now is trying to get down to what we can know 
for certain, or at least as certain as possible. Um, so yeah, that, that resonated with me a bit. And so where, what, what exactly do you believe now? Would you say, or do you not really hold to any firm beliefs? Oh, I generally assume that reality is real. Um, I think therefore I am. And, you know, I'm, I'm open to the to the skept to the deep skepticism that rejects most other things on top of that. I I find that I find that philosophers do a good job of trying to investigate those questions, but then we all tend to operate as though, you know, ph philosophers say we don't have free will, but we all act as though we do. Yeah, And so I find there's a bit of a gap between what I think and the way I am, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you kind of told me once that you don't really think you fit the box of either atheist or theist. Is that still what you would say? Yeah, I, I'd say that I'm deeply agnostic that I I don't claim to have knowledge outside of of what I can demonstrate um, on that subject and and so I, I spent I spent most of my 20s as a strong atheist um, and it was my my first exposure to psilocybin mm -hmm. that really kind of broke my attachment to thinking that I was going to be able to figure everything out myself. Yeah. And so, so it was, it was very comforting to, re to reject the things that I knew couldn't be true in the pursuit of still that capital T truth. I still felt the emotional need to, to understand it myself and to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And, and lately I feel like the project has been more trying to inquire with that into that emotional, um, the, the emotional core of my need to understand reality. Like, why do I feel so strongly that I have to be right? Yeah. Um, and and so the the humility of accepting that maybe there's a lot of things that I never will figure out and that um you know just being willing to relax that muscle a little bit yeah that makes is that kind of where your valuing of like mythology and whatnot come in yeah i I used to think, um, well, I would say that the first time that mythology became valuable to me was as a child. Um, my brother and his group of friends, um, I'm not sure how they got into it, but I'm grateful they did. They, they got into Greek mythology, and they each took on the name of a god and would call each other that. And, and I was, you know, the little tag-along brother, four years younger than this 
than my than my next older brother. And I really got into it. I would check out books about mythology from the library, and I uh, I became familiar with this pantheon of characters that embodied concepts in a way that maybe was the first disruption to my to my belief in that that the the Mormon Church had the only way to understand the world around us. Um, yeah. And that, that kind of laid, laid dormant for a while. But as, I, as I've returned to um, recognizing that there's something deeper than my intellect and that our conscious mind rides on top of a vast unconscious ocean, it's like a boat floating on the, on the wide ocean, and that what we have access to consciously is just a small fraction of who we are at the core. Yeah. Which psychedelics really opened me up to. Yeah, that's um, psychedelics like to a T because they they really kind of tear down your self-identity and your ego and just kind of absorb you into this like sea of consciousness, reality, whatever it is you're experiencing, but you don't you don't necessarily filter it through this ego of you know, like, like you were saying, not caring to have the hundred percent truth or just things like that. Um, so, well, uh, go, go ahead. Just your, your ego is itself a story that people start telling you as soon as you're born. They start saying, oh, aren't you such a cute little baby? And they start telling you your name. And they start telling you what you're going to be like when you grow up. And they start telling you how you're supposed to act. And you just soak all of this in for several years before you can even start conceptualizing yourself. And by the, by the time you reach kindergarten, you've, you've fully bought into this story that you're a separate being and that you have a name and that you're responsible for your actions. And you live out that story for some people for their whole lives and some people come to a recognition that it is a story and just because it's a story doesn't mean it's not real and that's kind of the line i've been playing with lately is that like as beings who use language to make sense of the world around us we're always trying to correlate cause with effect so that we can predict what's going to happen in the world around us yep and we use language to do that we we weave narratives of this happened then this happened so this happened and we use that to guide our decisions um so that's where I've been that's where I've kind of been coming back to the idea of myth is that their wisdom encoded into a structure of story that humans can relate to because our minds are storytelling machines. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense and you kind of took me for a ride there with the ego thing cuz you almost, you know, what you were saying at the beginning, I never really thought about like, you know, as soon as you're a baby, 
you do. You start getting this story about yourself that you didn't even necessarily create. Um, and I was, I, I really liked that thought. And then you went in and then you said, but doesn't mean the story's not true either. So it, you know, maybe kind of implying that, you know, maybe we can't really get rid of this ego, at least as flesh humans, you know, like who knows what happens when we die. But, but yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the psychedelic community, like will really focus on that's the goal is to dissolve the self, dissolve the ego, but maybe, maybe we're swinging the pendulum too far the other way at that point. Yeah. I like what you said about a pendulum. Cause it's like, you can try your hardest to escape your ego, but who is it that's trying and why do you want that? Yeah. It's a very ego driven process unless you do it. I mean, unless you operate from outside the ego while doing it yeah. and how to ground yourself outside the ego is, is a very, it's a very challenging practice. That's um, so true. I'm, it's, Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just, I was going to say it's like the definition of begging the question, basically, because you like, yeah, you're trying to dissolve your ego, but who is the one doing that? And it's just this circular, like, I want to dissolve the ego because why? I desire something. And And so it's like recognizing that your fingers and your hand are one continuous object and your hand and your arm are continuous and they have their own distinct character and their own distinct function but the separations we draw between them for purposes of labeling them are are for are a matter of convenience rather than a matter of objective truth like yeah. I, I feel like each of our individual egos function to function as a container for the individual units of humanity. But it's not wrong to view us as a unified field of humanity and as each of our egos as the components of it. Yeah. Yeah, like a machine with a bunch of cogs, basically. Even though that's that's the analogy used for the Matrix, so maybe we don't want to use it here. Um, so I I typically like to kind of gauge, you know, where the guests are at as far as scientific theories and whatnot, at least our current ones. Sounded like you somewhat were saying you accept evolution and whatnot. So, so where do you stand on all that? Like the big bang theory, uh, gravity, flat earth, round earth. Oh man. I feel like we're close to a big wormhole. <laughs> um, uh, maybe a can of wormholes. Uh, I think that. I've been doing a lot of exploring lately and i i generally appreciate 
the observations and analysis that have been done over the last few hundred years by the scientific community. But I also feel like sometimes people who are fans of science don't know how to put science into its proper context. Yeah. Which, by which I mean philosophical inquiry about what's real and how we can know what's real underpin the scientific method. And the scientific method functions only in a narrow, an intentionally narrow band of, of possible phenomena. Um, what I'm trying to say is that this, like the scientific method is limited to things that are repeatable. Mm -hmm. So it can't be applied to singularities. It can't be applied to, to things that only happen once in the universe. Like those sorts of entities, theories about them are by definition untestable and therefore outside of the purview of science. And so they're, but, but realize that underneath science is philosophy. And so even, even without a testable um, theory, you can develop an understanding of what could be. And um, I've been watching this stuff about the, the UAP disclosures. Have you seen a lot of that? A little bit. I, I haven't followed it super closely, but uh, I mean, there was just even recently another whistleblower, it sounds like. Yeah, just in the last week or two, uh, a very highly respected um, and uh, for formerly right at the middle of things, um, I, I don't remember his rank, um, but he, he resigned so that he could gain whistleblower status, and he's come out about the U.S.'s secret um, UFO recovery program, where the, the U.S. is in... Is, according to him, is in possession of exotic materials and non-human uh, spacecraft that they've that they've recovered. I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole, but so the, he actually said spacecraft. Like it wasn't just unidentified at that point. He like was actually identifying it. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what the what the vocabulary he used for it was, but okay. Um, Craft of non-human origin. Yeah, is that is. That is. In fact, I just I put a article I think about the same one in the Discord the other day. So it's pretty interesting stuff. I I don't know how far we want to get down the, that rabbit hole, but I will say that um, you know I agree with you that science, the scientific method, when it comes to like philosophy, the mind and epistemology and whatnot. Well, I guess it's associated with epistemology in some way, but it doesn't seem like it advances us there in any way. Like that that realm is belongs to our thoughts, our discussions, our debates and all that stuff. Whereas, you know, I do think though that science as a practical societal and worldly tool has done the most work anything has ever done for humans you know like just 
how quickly we have been able to progress and raise up people out of poverty and all sorts of stuff just by uh, the advancement of technology and whatnot. I, I agree. Um, yeah, may, maybe it sounded like I was being a science skeptic, but uh, no. I... I, I think yeah, I got I'm what trying. you were getting at. Like it was because I know you're you're kind of touching on what David Hume talked about, how, you know, science is a good practical method. But epi like epistemologically speaking, we can't really justify it. Like it's kind of a the, the induction method is kind of circular because we're just assuming that nature's going to match tomorrow as it always has yesterday. Yeah, he, he touches on the problem of induction and the, I, I like Hume's guillotine, which is the, the strict separation between descriptions of how things are and proscriptions for how they ought to be. Yeah. Um, in order to cross that bridge, you have to insert an assertion of some set of values. I care about humans, so therefore... I believe that morality involves treating humans well. You know, yeah. we, we go from observations of the universe and and we try to um, we try to make sense of what we should do going yeah. forward. But but there's that gap in between them. I'm mean, I'm glad you brought up morality a little. I I wasn't even planning on really asking you much about it, but it's. It's actually one of my favorite fields in philosophy, um, besides religion and God stuff. I because I'm a moral realist, or like I believe in objective morality, and from the way the way you just described it, it kind of sounds similar to how I go about it. Like we're we're observing this phenomena of human behavior and like certain you know people suffering or or flourishing and whatnot and then make decisions from there on like what we think is moral uh are you are you a moral realist or kind of anti-realist uh now i've been delving into this a little bit uh and i don't quite have my head completely wrapped around it but um I've heard this problem of induction and the problem of moral realism um, discussed recently. And they, what they have in common is that even though we can't prove that the sun will rise tomorrow just because it's risen every day of our lives, um, which is the problem of induction, we act as though it will. Like, we operate on that assumption. Yeah. And... For me, the same the same is true of morality. We we have preferences that we experience, and we try to justify those preferences by putting together some theory of morality around it. But ultimately, there's that same gap where it becomes a circular argument of things. I, I find things to be moral because they align with what I find things what things I find to be moral. Yeah. Yeah, true. I I think as far as my perspective goes, it 
it does have just as much justification as induction, I guess, which might sound crazy to like super scientific people. Cause they're like, no science has way more justification than your moral theories. But, but just like you said, it's the same thing. We're just kind of riding on assumptions in which literally every single worldview brings a bag of presuppositions to the table. You know, the famous religious one is God. Obviously that is the presupposition. God is uncreated or self-created, which is ultimately circular. And so, yeah, I just, I don't think there's no more circular than a big bang. Yeah. Well, that could be interesting to talk about, but, um, that, and that's exactly kind of what I'm getting at is that every single worldview brings like a bag of presuppositions to the table. Uh, ultimately, we all have something circular within our framework. What do you... Yeah. So when you said that the Big Bang is circular, what exactly do you mean there? Well, maybe it's not... Maybe circular is the wrong label to apply, but it's it's the if the objection is that we're asking for a miracle when we when we ask for um, like when when we are trying to explain um, the origin of the universe and they say, well, God created it. Well, who created God? Well, and you can go all the way back up the line and. Uh, realize that you're going to need some miraculous origination at the beginning. And um, as far as explaining why the Big Bang happened, um, we we have lots of theories about what the universe looked like in the moments after the Big Bang. But as far as creating a testable hypothesis of what caused the Big Bang itself, it's an unscientific question hmm. because it's inherently untestable. And so it's, it relies on the acceptance of a singularity just as the theological argument relies on the acceptance of the existence of God. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that cause you first use the word mir miraculous and that always gets my, you know, stomach churning. Cause I try to, I don't really like see any evidence for actual miracles, but, but then you, in the scientific framework, you use the word singularity. And so it's like, you know, they almost, they could almost be similar language just in a different light. Cause yeah, singularity is just nothing like we've seen before or can be repeatable. Um, I, I do want to say there, there are definitely, you know, it's theoretical physics. So again, it's not very justifiable any more than I guess, a, uh, religious claims, but there are definitely theories about quantum waves and like quantum fields being this kind of eternal existing thing and they just fluctuate. And ultimately that's what caused the spark of like the universe, um, but again, I think it all boils down to like, no matter what you believe, it seems like there has to be something just existing eternally 
or just I've almost gotten to this point where I feel like not complete nothingness is just impossible like there had to be something it couldn't have been any other way and I guess the connection I'm drawing is that it's not knowable and yeah. in in that it's not knowable it it taunts that part of myself that feels that it that I must be right you know that I that I have to figure out reality so that I can bend it to my will I don't know why I feel the need yeah uh, I I I want to be able to predict I want to be able to make good choices and and that requires understanding the world around me yep true and I think maybe we can move on a little bit, but I, I will say, I do think the one, the one thing science really is good at is predictions. I mean, that's literally what it's all about, you know, trying to make a novel prediction and if it comes true or not like a spooky prediction, but you know what I mean? No. And, and it's, it's excellent at those predictions. And what I'm, what I'm trying to point out when I say that science has a limited scope is that it's limited to those things which are precisely predictable. Mm. And so um, when, that, that's why science has so little to say about uh, human you know, politics and uh, morality. Like there's a gap in between it because as far as understanding the properties of materials and the properties of particles and um you know light we we're those things are predictable and repeatable and um and have gone through a refinement of understanding over the last several hundred years but a lot of them we haven't and don't expect to fundamentally alter our understanding of them but there but there are all these open questions that fall into categories other than science because science deals with that which can be predicted and tested. This is a little controversial, but when we get into things like the social sciences, and there's, there's a big problem with replication of studies because when you're talking about humans and their behavior, we're, it's a different kind of thing than when we're talking about photons and atoms. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, like in psychology, you still can somewhat predict people's behaviors if you've been observing them and, like, know who they are and stuff. But the predictions are definitely not as cut and dry. It's not like this happens every single time and we basically know it's going to happen again um, yeah, it's, and I think that's why a lot of people call them like the soft sciences or whatever, just because, you know, we use the same method, but it's not quite as, uh, potent, I guess. I, so I kind of think we touched on one of the questions I wanted to ask and this next thing, you know, I, it sounds like you value truth quite a bit and that's kind of where I'm at and I know we've talked about how you know 
accepting that maybe we can't really come to this 100% truth thing. And I've also accepted that, but I still... I still don't think it's going to stop me from hunting for it. You know what I mean? It's just going to keep me from getting too prideful or like whatever it may be and latching myself onto something. And it kind of sounds like you're in a similar boat. And I, I just wonder because the people that we've had discussions with and stuff, it seems like all this mythology and religious scripture and stuff is a very valuable thing to people. And even if, even if they're like, I don't really care if it's true, it brings a lot of value to my life. They use it in a practical sense. Um, is that kind of where you're at as far as mythology? Uh, with regard to that, yeah, I'd say that Well, there's, there's so many different ways I want to go with that. Um, getting back to philosophy and epistemology a little bit. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I was sitting with a friend and it really just struck me how, you know, the light coming into my eyes and the sounds coming into my ears we're, we're creating some sort of sensation inside my mind that then I was knitting together into an experience of reality. Yeah. So much as I want to be in contact with reality, I will forever be that one layer behind it where I'm experiencing my senses trying to interpret reality. And... So operating from that position where I recognize that I'm I'm trying to tell a story about my surroundings and my place within them. And that fact of that of linguistic description that is so challenging to get outside of inside my awareness, that's that's where I connect with myth is the idea that like <clears throat> the reality we experience is not direct reality it's our story of reality and so the best i can do is ex is express through words what my experience is and what my life is like and as soon as another being hears that they they don't have access to my experience they have access to the story i've told about it and I think that that's where um, myth and culture come from, is humans seem to be this group organism where we come together as a tribe and uh, share in the things that we have a surplus of and ask for the things that we're in need of. And cultural knowledge is one of those things that gets passed down from those who have it to those who need it and is made more abundant in the sharing of it. Like it's, it's a resource which is not exhausted by sharing it. Yeah, true.
Man, that's so it's a really cool perspective, honestly. I um what you said about like always being one layer beneath reality basically. It's almost like you can just look e at each one of us as a filter. There's just information out there, there's reality out there, and we're all just filtering it through our experience. And I agree with you 100%. I think this is exactly where the anthropomorphizing came from in humans. And we started telling stories about, you know, the water, the wind, and all the gods coming into, into being. Um, I'm curious if there's any, like, as far as religious goes, not, not, just, uh, not just myth as in, like, Greek mythology or anything, but is there any religious scripture or doctrine that you find more or less valuable than other things? Um, it's such a big wide world out there, but Hinduism um, um, and some of the, some of the religions that have descended from the, from the Hindu worldview, like Jainism and Sikhism. Yeah. Especially Jainism. Um, is that have, sorry have intriguing me lately go ahead i'm sorry to interrupt but i just when you said jainism i think are you talking like i've always said it jainism and maybe like, i could be wrong but is it the same thing or is it something else me like how do you spell it j-a-i-n J -A -I -N. yeah jainism okay so it is the same thing i probably have been just saying it wrong this whole time no, you might have it right. Um, yeah, they're, that's a really cool... I, I really want to read more into their actual scriptures. But from what I've heard, they're basically the most peaceful people there are. Like, even towards insects and all life. And according to, like, my moral theory, basically, these are the, the morally superior people of the entire world. So... Well, I, I like their precepts that it, as, I, as I find them on Wikipedia. Um, they, they, they have five main vows or five main ethics, um, which is um, intentional nonviolence mm -hmm. uh, or ahimsa, uh, truth, which is satya, asteya, not stealing, brahmacharya is their celibacy, uh, which is uh, oh, and uh, aparigraha, which is non-possessiveness, which is non-attachment to material and psychological possessions. Oh, which I love. You know the uh, one avoiding craving and greed. I it's interesting about the chaste living thing because, well, I guess it's because that's just so easy to turn into an attachment. Um, but it seems like it could just fall into the attachment part. So I wonder why specifically it's like a fifth point that like we will vow to be celibate. Well, here it says that the celibacy is only really vowed by the monks and nuns, mm. but for lay people, the, the vow means chastity and faithfulness to your partner. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. 
in in a lot of these um, Indian traditions, there's a distinction between the uh, the holy people and the householders, like the lay people, and and so there's there's those who devote their lives to uh, to the to the pursuit of these ideals, and those who see the virtue in the ideals but are still living uh, maybe a more attached life uh, where they're still going through the through through the process of of humanity if, so if you if you will yeah and this might be a weird little rabbit hole to go down and you know feel free to just move on if you don't care to but i find it super interesting that most religions are so obsessed with sex or purity of sex and why do you think that is well it's i mean having both come from the the lds culture i have a i have a feeling that um that there's a lot of dysfunction in that culture um, as far as recognizing the reasons why it might be valuable to um, to master your your urges over your creative force. That's kind of how I've been viewing it lately is that there's it's like a gas tank and you can be mindless about your your shifting and your you know just keep the pedal to the metal and go fast and brake hard and not get very high fuel efficiency or you can be thoughtful about and and judicious about how you spend your energy hmm. and and maybe look out a little farther down the road and see when you're going to have to slow down and stop and maybe not accelerate all the way up to the stop sign, you know, by being thoughtful about how you expend that resource of your creative energy. Um, and I think this is more what brahmacharya is about mm -hmm. is, is recognizing that your vital force is a valuable resource and that if you need to spend it on reproduction um, or on pleasure like or on bonding with a with a partner those are appropriate uses of your creative force but um, but to to treat it thoughtlessly and to just expend that energy mindlessly yeah. might be doing a disservice to yourself. I yeah, I agree with that completely. It's like and I think it goes for many other things, not just sex, but um the use of substances and whatnot, you know, it's it's kind of that old cliche thing like everything in moderation or whatever. Um but I I at least for high demanding religions, maybe not Jainism, um but obviously Mormonism, Western religions and stuff, I feel like they take it much, much further than just, you know, responsibly and thoughtfully engage in these behaviors. 
they take it to the purest sense of like, no, avoid this completely unless you're married. Uh, and you know, even, even some religions, even if you're married, it's still like, no, avoid this, this certain sexual act, this one, only reproductive sexual acts are allowed or, and so, yeah, I just, it's kind of like another way to look at it for me is how I, my relationship with alcohol. And I think because of how I was raised that like, we do not touch this stuff. It's just like, it's complete suppression of the desire or the thing. And then as soon as you might get a taste of it or experience it, at least what happened to me is I just, then it engulfed me because, and then I couldn't control my desires and I was doing it thoughtlessly without moderation. And I think that's similar to how the purity with sex can be too. I think so. That makes a lot of sense. Um, for, for me, that came from a feeling of lack of ownership over that decision. Mm. Um, when it's, when it's an expectation and, uh, an obligation, um, it can be easy to want to, um, squirm out from underneath that pressure. And it's been a challenge for me to recognize that. How, how to say this? Um, rebellion against. Yeah, like, I don't I don't quite know how to say it, but. Yeah, and it, I mean, I really I, do. Okay. No, no, I want you to be able to finish your thought. Well, just. I went from feeling like I didn't have a choice to feeling like the only way to uh, to have my own choice was to rebel against what I was being told. Exactly. And and as I as I come back to it with the maturity of adulthood, trying to recognize that that there is a that I can do what I was told was wise despite not being given the option in the first place that like I can now choose to make that choice and, and that the mark of maturity is in recognizing that even if the reasons were not reasons that I can get behind, maybe the actions are something worth pursuing. Mm. Yeah. Well, and that was, sorry for a weird little rabbit trail we weren't planning on talking about, but I thought it was interesting because it's just a common thing throughout all religions, I feel like. And so I, I did want to ask if there's any religious uh, institutions or beliefs that you, that you don't think actually help humanity or can or are detrimental to humanity or if you value them all as positive i think dogmatism can 
dwell in most religious structures. And I think that dogmatism is harmful wherever it's found. Yeah. Whether it's in the scientific community or the um, religious um, theological community. Um, I think that uh, well, we we talked. We said we were going to talk about mysticism, and I just wanted to touch on on yeah. what what this says about mysticism. It says that mysticism is the belief that people can directly experience God or true reality, rather than through books, ritual, or other people. Um, mystics exist within most religions, though not all people who practice religions are mystics. Hmm. That's, so I think, go ahead. Well, I was just, that's interesting that we actually pulled up different definitions here because the one I found was basically talking about um, like spiritual knowledge is inaccessible to the intellect. I guess what it's meaning maybe is like inaccessible through induction and things like that um and may be attained through self-surrender so I, I don't know why when i first read it i thought it was like almost similar to agnosticism of of this like well we can't actually access all this knowledge we can only experience it directly basically yeah it's it's interesting because the the etymology of it um says mysticism is derived from the Greek meow, meaning I conceal. And um, and its derivative mystikos, meaning an initiate. So the, this process of initiation of by degrees coming closer and closer to an understanding of the absolute truth um, is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. The, the idea that truth is available but if you're using your intellectual structures, you might not be able to bridge the gap. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a place of knowing other than the mind uh, down inside the body that, that connects to forms of truth that are experienced first and then understood through the intellect yeah that it it kind of brings me back to what we've talked about like ourselves as the filter to all of this information and reality and then also things like meditation and psychedelics being tools for tearing down those you know rigid filters i guess and just being in this pure like exit like just existing rather than I, I guess try and communicate what what is existing you're just directly experiencing it and any attempt at description pulls you out of the direct experience yeah wow and so there, there is a way to become directly in contact with what you're experiencing, but 
the moment you try to conceptualize it and articulate it, you've pulled yourself out of the experience itself. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I, that's another, have you read much about mysticism or? Um, so it's, it's deeply connected with, with things like, like the, like mysteries, meaning like things that are hidden and mm. revealed as you, as you approach them. And I, I get into things about, you know, secret societies and groups that come together to, to share information that isn't necessarily, um, available to the wider world, isn't necessarily acceptable to the wider world, at least in the past and and how some of those people came together um i don't know if you've heard of the invisible college i'm sure you've heard of the royal society of london yeah i've uh there's like only a few i've heard of the royal society then there's the skull and bones the freemasons other than that i'm not sure if illuminati's real or not or if that's just a made-up one but I know those ones in particular are like legit actual secret society groups. Like they call themselves that in fact. Yeah. The, the Illuminati was a genuine political institution in Bavaria in 1776. Mm. And, um, the, the Royal society of London was, I mean, as we're talking about the, the pursuit of science. It started out as uh, something called the Invisible College, uh, a bunch of scientists and philosophers who kept in correspondence with one another and encouraged each other and would meet face to face. And uh, this group was the was the was the group out of which the Royal Society of London was formed. Um, these, um, sorry, I, I, I don't want to get into too much detail about the, the individual names, but Robert Boyle was, a uh, you know, of Boyle's law. Yeah. He was, yeah. he was one of the central figures that was in correspondence with people all over Europe and, uh, and in Britain and had the heretic the heretical idea that they should investigate natural law through experimentation and share their results with one another and that was a a radical and blasphemous concept at the time and is the basis of the scientific method hmm. and so recognizing that it used to be you used to put yourself in mortal peril to, you know, question whether the earth orbited the sun or, um, you know, things like that, because it was, it was theological dogma that you'd be going against. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's just fascinating to consider that we, we have the, we have the tendency to believe that we're at the end point of history 
and that everything that needed to be done has been done, and we sit here on the throne of our knowledge. But it's, I think, important to recognize what deeply held assumptions are shared by our society and are still heretical to, to question. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's now I have a few different paths I would like to go down. It's always tough deciding which one sounds the most exciting. Um, so I feel like with uh, these secret societies a little bit, it's almost like they try and have this monopoly on the knowledge that's being passed down kind of, you know, culturally. And so it, it makes me wonder, you know, if they, if these groups of people actually do have ancient traditions and knowledge that didn't get widespread to the world because they wanted to monopolize it and use it themselves. Um, but the, obviously that's very, uh, just conspiracy thinking on my part. Um, but it would make sense. Like if, if they had the knowledge that was passed down from the ancient people, like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I think that it became very, that there is information that was considered heretical for over a thousand years in Western Europe since the fall of Rome and the, um, you know, the rise of the Holy Roman Empire and things like Greek philosophy and Egyptian, um, Egyptian mythology and Jewish Kabbalah were all considered heresies. And there is, the, as far as like the Hermetic tradition, going back to the land of Chem uh, or ancient Egypt, where the word chemistry comes from, the the knowledge of, um, I mean, it's it's so much to go into, but <laughs> that the Hermetic corpus was was preserved. Um, in the Middle East uh, and brought back during the Crusades, but was considered heretical. And so the the Knights Templar, um, I mean, this is, this is going off of some stuff I read on the internet. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, the, the Knights Templar were the inheritors and possessors and protectors of ancient wisdom that had come down through the Middle East from Greece and Rome and Egypt. And uh, some of those like because we live in a land where our founding fathers established religious freedom, we can now talk about these concepts out in the open but at the time of the founding, it was still uh, 
oh man, I, I, I need to be able to weave this together a little better, but no, you're, it's kind of, I, it, it feels like, like the, the information that they could only share in secret at the time has now been able to come out into the open. And I don't think that they guard their secrets so jealously anymore. I mm. think that it's available for those who want to investigate. Yeah, I think that's true as well. Like anyone could go to the Freemasons and, you know, sign up to be. And interesting too is I'm sure you knew that Joseph Smith was a Freemason. And, you know, you kind of mentioned how once we founded our country, the religious, uh, you know, the idea of religious freedom definitely began, began. But when you look at a group like the Mormons, I don't think it was actually practiced very well because they were constantly chasing the Mormons out, killing them, harassing them, and they were constantly fleeing for their lives. So, you know, it seems like, well, religious freedom for the ones we, the religions we think are appropriate, but if we don't like uh, it, then... You're, you're right. I think it's really hard for those, for, for us here in the modern day, to to really understand what it's like to to be so captured by an ideology um when you look at the the british civil wars that happened through the 17th century and the um you know the troubles between the protestants and the catholics and how religious power was the main power in people's lives for a millennium and what uh that 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 even in the first century of our country's founding these people still were driven by their religious passions and and that it's it's a challenge to allow people to have a worldview that contradicts your worldview yeah. and not feel existentially threatened by it. Well, and I think even to this day, and, you know, who knows how much the media or social media, certain things blow, blow what out of proportion, um, but, you know, I would say we're dealing with that now, this kind of struggle of, yes, we all have religious freedom, but there are, there are also people in this country who are using their religion as a way to dictate how everyone else gets to live. And so it is this, like, battle between, like, well, we want everyone to have their freedoms, but at the same time, if you're using your religion to justify these laws or actions or whatever you're doing, there becomes a conflict. Yeah, I think, I think there's still a lot left to be learned about the ideals of our founding fathers. And, um, yeah, there's a, 
I'll post it in the Discord. But it, yeah. I, I, I recently watched a documentary about the true religious aims of our founding fathers, and it was from a perspective of someone who wanted us to be a Christian nation, but was talking mm-hmm. about how George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were not professed Christians who were trying to establish a Christian nation. They were Freemasons who wanted to set up a a space where the religious turmoils would would become secondary to reason and the laws of man. Yeah. And I think they did a pretty good job. You think we have? Um, I think that never has there been, well, not in the last thousand years, never has there been a place more able to have these sorts of discussions and question the fundamental questions that uh, we're able to freely and openly have in conversations like this. Well, maybe let me let me just stop beating around the bush. How dire do you think something like Christian nationalism or fascism is in our country right now? I'd say it's something that we need to keep a vigilant eye on and work against and um and that we'll be honoring our founding fathers if we do so. This was not intended as a Christian nation. Right. And those who think it was are rev- trying to revise history. And I, I, I wouldn't venture a guess as to how close we are to them succeeding. Uh, I'd say it's a, it's something that we need to be aware of and vigilant against. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that the, I think it's like, it's, it's hard to really gauge how dire things like this actually are. Especially when you're someone like me or maybe yourself who, you know, I'm like constantly in the debate world and um, all, you know, and so maybe I'm just seeing the worst voices and the loudest voices and, you know, hopefully maybe it's really not that big of a portion of our population who things like this, but it it does seem over the past two to five years since I've been tuning in that it has just been increasing. Like even just within the last two years, um, you know, stuff like in, in Florida and with Ron DeSantis and things like that. I, I don't know. (laughs) I worry that it's more dire than, then we make it out to be, but it, you know, again, maybe I'm just hearing the loudest voices. Mm-hmm. I, I have a tendency to want to 
wrap my head around everything mm. and then make a judgment that I can then live my life by. But I've been trying to practice to stay humble and stay present and try to release attachments. I think that the founding principles of the country are not conducive with Christian Christian nationalism. Yeah. And so as long as we keep our eye on the constitution and and recognize that people are allowed to live their lives the way they choose and try to respect that. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's it's a challenging pursuit. For but sure. I think that the the roadmap is laid out for us. Well, and I I appreciate what you said cuz I think I need to remind myself and hear it as well sometimes that you know, I do get wrapped up in this of like you said coming to the conclusion of what's going down exactly and but I really do I really do think that throughout the country things are way more peaceful than I have it in my mind. I think a lot of people Utah is a great example because you know it seems like there's like a split between people's ideologies and they just somehow coexist together and make it work. So it's kind of cool. Um, well, I, so I forgot to ask you how much time you were planning here. I, we've gone a little over an hour at this point. I'm, I'm available. I don't know okay. how long you want it to go. But... Yeah. I mean, I, I typically go at least an hour, but I, I use go over sometimes more if, if the guest is willing. So, uh, the only other thing I kind of wanted to touch on with you was about labels themselves and giving ourselves labels. Cause it seems like you are, you are very hesitant to, you know, label yourself anything or attach yourself to any, even, even beyond labeling, it seems like you just, you try really hard not to attach yourself to an ideology. Uh, yeah. Um, that's true. Uh, I, I experienced what it was like to dogmatically believe that I had the truth. And um, in retrospect, it horrifies me. I look at how I treated non-member friends at school and um you know through through a through a spirit of wanting to share the truth i didn't allow them to have the space to be themselves and so it, the the wanting to stay away from labels um for me feels connected to um to not wanting to fall into dogma yeah that makes um, sense. And I, you know, I agree with you completely. Dogma is ba basically the biggest danger about any ideology. And, you know, you can have even a religion that's not dogmatic and it's completely harmless, you know, and then another religion that is, and it's causing a lot of harm for kids being indoctrinated or whatever it might be. Um, 
And this, so this topic is interesting for me because it's kind of an internal battle I have where I agree with you. Yeah, I don't want to label myself too much to like just dig myself into one hole and not be open-minded to other things. Um, but at the same time, I, I really think they're super useful to communicate with other people um, and kind of join communities and movements and like do things together to accomplish and progress. I can agree with that. Um, I, I had a conversation with my, my friend who's a therapist, uh, many conversations about this subject, about a diagnosis, about the value of having a diagnosis. Because some people, when they receive a diagnosis, um, I mean, the, the positive case is when you, you go and you describe a set of symptoms and the practitioner can say, oh, that sounds like this label. And then they can go and research treatments and, um, you know, tend, the things that tend to happen with that with that condition and the potential treatments for the condition and the potential comorbidities with the condition. So having, having a center point from which to operate when you're like trying to acquire information about that phenomenon is completely valuable. But the yeah. negative case of what can happen is if someone takes that, takes that diagnosis or that label and it limits them in their understanding of what is now possible for them because i i for example have adhd and if i go around saying like if i if i go looking for resources for adhd i love having that label available to go and hear people's stories that i relate to and find um, tools that have worked for people but it can become a trap in my mind if I say, oh, well, I'm terrible at managing time because I have ADHD. And so I kind of allow for that dysfunction to define myself rather than accepting that it, oh, you might have a tendency to, to be blind to the passage of time because, uh, you know, because that's just what you're like versus having that negative limiting self-belief that I'll never be good with time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy, actually, like the diagnosis compared to the label of what you believe, like, for example, atheist or theist, because yeah, it seems like you could easily just, let the label carry you which i think you know i know atheists do it too but i i think people who believe in god and religion do it more because it seems more detrimental if they're wrong um but it, it like you said it kind of limits you it closes you off to maybe a naturalistic world or if you're an atheist that's super you know, skeptical, it, it closes you off to these ideas. It limits your perspective if you don't allow yourself to uh, be open-minded. Right. 
And there's there's a tendency to think that if you have a label for something, that you understand it. Mm. And so pe people confuse their description of a phenomenon with with an an actual familiarity with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true because you know, something a label oftentimes I feel like gets read as an ontological claim. Like if I say I'm an atheist to someone else, they're like thinking that maybe I'm making this ontological claim that like for sure God's not real. Right. But, but as far as my use of the word, it's more epistem, uh, it's more from epistemology. It's more just like with the knowledge I have, I don't believe in this. And so that's my label. It's just like, I don't, yeah, uh, if that made any sense. A little bit. Yeah, it just seems like... Like, like, like you're talking about people confusing the your atheism with making a positive claim that there is no God? Well, and, and I would say labels in general. It does seem like when you're reading someone else's when you're listening to someone else describe what they think or labels themselves as something, I feel like we don't often enough just see it as an epistemological claim, just like, you know, rather than this 100% truth claim that like, I know God exists, it's more just like from my experience and the knowledge I have, I've come to this conclusion. I could be wrong though. Cause especially with re religious people, they might actually be saying, yeah, I do know God exists. Like, I, I mean, I, I said that as a young Mormon kid. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting, what is it to know something? Right. Yeah. And I think we're probably both on the same page about agnosticism and skepticism that we don't really, you know, you maybe don't call yourself an atheist, but I, although I do, I'm very agnostic as well. Like I don't, I actually, I do think there are some arguments to be made against the case for no God, but I don't really care to focus on it because it doesn't matter that much. Um, yeah, did you happen to think of any questions that you would want to ask me? Um, I, I'm, I'm curious what you think about the idea of well, I, I wanted to delve a little bit into the idea of positive conspiracies mm. of people, the benefit of people getting together to operate, to, pro to promote their shared values and recognizing that sometimes to reach that end, the the means of of only sharing as much information as someone needs until they need it is a 
is a beneficial and I'm 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 playing with the idea that that it, that conspiracies are the rule rather than the exception, and mm. that there's a there's a false distinction in in the you know that what we normally think of as conspiracy theories these you know hidden and nefarious groups of people who get together, but why why don't we call the mafia a conspiracy theory? Well, it's because we know about it. Um, we, right. you know, it's, it's come up above the surface. Why don't we call, uh, corporate governance a conspiracy? The, you know, the, the board of a, co of a corporation gets together and makes plans for the next quarter or the next five years, and they don't announce those plans to the public. They, they wait until the people with a shared interest and a shared understanding are all together in the boardroom and then they close the door and they discuss their plans and they um they tell the people who need to know under them um but it'll come out when it comes out but it will already have had its effect by then um i i kind of have been looking lately at the idea of um, we live we live so much in in this in the well it, it reminds me of a of a story of uh, an old fish who swims past three young fish and says well boys how's the water today and as he as soon as he's gone one of the fish turns to the other two fish and says what in the world is water because when when you swim through a medium, it's hard to understand that that medium itself ha is a substance. And I feel like in in the world we live in, we're just so used to clubs and groups and classes and grades, as in like uh, you know the cohort of people that you go through school with, like. The culture we live in is defined by separating people into groups with similar levels of knowledge and indoctrinating them into further levels of knowledge and then certifying that they've received that knowledge through tests or rituals of graduation. Um, you know, it's... How does that idea seem to you? So... <clears throat> very very interesting to think about i i think any sort of disagreements i might be giving you are going to stem from semantics basically and the use of language because i i pulled up the definition for conspiracy here and it seems like a key part of it is in order to do something unlawful or harmful and it and it seems like maybe you're looking like you said positive conspiracy like you're looking at it as in something beneficial i guess well here here we get into the the question of is what is legal and what is moral perfectly mapped onto one another no they're not I, I would say that 
the founding fathers engaged in a conspiracy because if they had been if they'd been discovered or uh, betrayed they they would have been tried for treason um, and we in retrospect we praise what they've done and we recognize that they set up a, a system in which people can um, can be open about their beliefs rather than having to uh, keep them secret and hidden but Yeah, yeah. I, it is a it is a semantic distinction that I'm even trying to wrap my head around, because if you, I mean, if if your definition contains the fact that it's an illegal, wrongful, or subversive act that they're agreeing to perform together, then then it becomes kind of tautological when we talk about conspiracies being being an evil thing. But well, I think that you know, I think you've made the case for there being there there existing such a thing as a positive conspiracy in the sense that maybe it was unlawful at the time and harmful to some, like fighting for independence, as you were talking about the founding fathers. I think maybe that would fit into what you're saying. It it was kind of a conspiracy to to break away from Great Britain and um and ended up being a good thing. Um I think more it doesn't necessarily fit into what we might just call like a community or a club or or even business unless the business is actively plotting like you know, some sort of tax evasion or, or, you know, actually businesses probably do it all the time, like giving pay cuts to their employees or, um, you know, uh, union bashing. What, what do you call it? <laughs> like when unions are trying to form and, and they put out all this propaganda to try and tear down the union. Um, I would say that is somewhat them conspiring, but again, it seems like the connotation is usually a negative thing. Well, at, that reminds me of Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. Says, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends... Sorry, one second. A pop-up came up. Even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. Like my my thesis, my my statement is that conspiracies are more common than we think and that um, that we live in a culture that is set up to cover for conspiracies. Yeah, which I can. I can agree with. So here, here's how I see like conspiracies here in the U.S. is I think that our government and corporations and stuff are probably conspiring to do things all the time. I think where the disconnect is with the people 
is we think that we have figured it all out and we have built this grand narrative on our YouTube channels and we know that this group is doing X, Y, and Z and for this reason. And I just, I don't think we're that smart. I, I do think they're doing shady shit all the time, but we don't really know about it. And that's what the, you know, that's what a conspiracy is really. Right. Um, Ultimately, psychologically comes back to my desire to understand the whole world around me. Yep. And it's it's easier to try to close that loop and make an assumption that, oh, this must be happening, or, uh, oh, obviously this plus this equals that. And being willing to leave those loops open in your mind is a psychologically uncomfortable place to operate from. Yeah. But I think is more grounded in reality. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I really do. Cause you know, when I, in my 20 young twenties, when I like first had left the church and gone to college and stuff, that's naturally where I gravitated was cons I used to be like super into conspiracies and not just like, cause nowadays I'm, I'm down to hear them and listen to them and see what I think about them. But back then it was this 100% framework built. Like I know how the world's running, the Illuminati's doing this. And like it, I think on some level it's, it's a desire to feel special and in the know, like, you know, what's happening. Um, and just, I, I think it might just be biological in us to just like f need to feel like we do have the correct answer. That's kind of something you've been touching on this all evening. And I just wanted to say someone commented and it's union busting. I said union bashing, but that's, that's what I was going for. <clears throat> well, and even if you if you take their um, account for it, the the way the Masons began is an interesting history, where you you really would need a way, like if for for people who share the same trade, like to be able to vouch for one another, and. For, for an individual who is growing in their understanding of, of a craft to, um, to go step by step, degree by degree, and um, show that they have an understanding of, of, the, of the practice of their craft. Mm. And so um, the, the, the Masons started from the, the builders of monuments and castles and temples and uh in order to like when you travel from one european city to another for work when when you get there you you'd have to show through through your secret signs and tokens that you had been initiated in at a certain level and and it's obvious why that would be beneficial and valuable for the practitioners of a, of a trade. And then that same system of initiation and communication of these levels is, is a very useful tool 
for um for the for networking mm-hmm. um i mean where where it was initially for networking around the skillful operation of a of a craft it became um and that's what they call craft masons uh it became a a whole system and worldview of um you know discussing the great architect of the universe and became kind of a a theological pursuit in and of itself but one of their first rules was regardless of what religion you participate in uh we're not going to have religious conflict um here in the lodge yeah and so um you can see how out of a set of rules and a set of levels for what well, rules for uh, attaining different levels you you out of that emerges a network that can function over distance and time yeah um yeah and i think that that's again kind of what you said is that something that we as humanity has have kind of been doing since the beginning of time we forming our own tribes and and then passing down the tools and the knowledge to to our children and whatnot um so i feel like that's another thing that's just built into us is to form these these communities and these groups um yeah and i i don't know i'm trying to think of a way that we could make conspiracy work for for those type of things and i i just i just don't know how how i could see it that way and and not even just strictly from the definition but just how i've experienced the word conspiracy too is just i think that's how i have it in my mind is that it's that this malicious and intentional plan to subvert some other people in order for your gain and the 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 only trouble with that definition is nefariousness is in the eye of the beholder mm. if 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 i'm trying to protect the monarchy and i i discover a nefarious anti-monarchist plot um you know that's that's the definition of a conspiracy but if i value liberty and brotherhood and egalitarian values then the monarchy itself is the conspiracy yeah uh it's it's tough for me because like i mentioned earlier i i don't really think morality and it's is a subjective thing i don't I don't think it is in the eye of the beholder. Um, I think oftentimes we in, we interpret it that way. We again we use our filter to interpret it, what we think morality is. Um, but I yeah. So I don't. I th- basically what it what it revolves around for me is. Um, involuntary impositions of will, 
you know, not someone like not consenting to something that happens to them. And, and so with, with anything that's actually a conspiracy, I feel like they would be directly violating that principle by manipulating other people for their own benefit. Well, that, that's where we get into some, some weird stuff with, um, with secret societies because they, they kind of agree with you in the, <laughs> in, in some of the hidden orders, the, the idea that if you deceive someone that there are karmic consequences, but if you warn them ahead of time or explain to them um, how it's going to go, that then you've discharged your karmic responsibility. And so huh. some of these secret societies are less secret than you'd think. They've published their, um, their aims and their operations, and they've just obscured them. I mean, they've just become obscured by speculation and you know all sorts of um, stories and things about them yeah yeah well it's it's definitely interesting i is i don't know do you feel satisfied by the conspiracy talk because you know i'm down to keep going if if you want but well, it's one of those where I try to keep my mind open and not come to too many conclusions. Yeah. But um, what what really what I struggle with that I see other people doing is coming to the conclusion that oh that can't be true, and I think that a lot of times people's insistence that we don't live amid layers and layers of goings on that we'll never have an understanding of is the desire for psychological closure. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of funny asking if I'm satisfied with the, with <laughs> how the conversation wrapped up because uh, I, that's kind of where I'm operating from is that I, I, I don't think there is a satisfying level of closure to this discussion. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the the entire discussion as a whole and, you know, not just groups of people, but reality itself. And that's that's what I'm constantly fighting because I want so badly <laughs> to have that closure. But, you know, the journey's fun in itself to try and get there anyway, even if I can't achieve it. So uh, we probably should start wrapping up here i mean i i'm down if you have any other topics or questions in mind um but you know maybe one more or so and if if not then yeah i think it's getting to be that time well i i'm sure that you discussed this on other episodes but um as far as like your grounding, um, would you would you say that 
you're you're an agnostic atheist mm-hmm. and a a moral realist. Yeah. How do you how do you kind of square that circle? Well, I would start by saying the the grounding I have is the same as yours. Basically, the cogito, I think, therefore I am. That's pretty much the thing I'm most certain of, right? Um, but I, but then I, uh, from there, I think I recognize that we don't, we don't need to have 100% certainty in order to operate within this reality. You know, we can have degrees of certainty about certain things without being like, yes, this is true or no, this is false. It can be like, yeah, this seems most likely because of the patterns that we have observed and, um, you know, getting back into induction a little bit, like we've made these predictions so many times that like, okay, now induction to me feels about, you know, 80, 90% of like, I, I feel like this is a trustworthy tool in the belt because it has shown its use. And I think that it could be said similarly for religious and spiritual people that, you know, these practices over and over and again have shown value and usefulness within my life. Um, So, well, I guess putting a degree to certainty on something like that's a little different. But anyway, so that's kind of where I start the grounding and then something like moral realism is just using the same method of induction. Like I wouldn't necessarily say it's like scientific. Like I like possibly maybe one day, I guess we could figure out all the, (laughs) the mechanics behind it all, but who knows if, if we can, but basically the induction method of observing phenomena in this reality and then coming to a conclusion about what that means, you know, because often like something like gravity, right? We don't actually know what gravity exactly looks like or what exactly all it entails or why it does what it does, why it's here. But what we observe are the effects of gravity. And so because of those effects, we say, well, we think we have a good theory on gravity. And so I, I approach moral realism the same way as there's these effects that we can observe things like progression of liberation you throughout human history. We used to own way more slaves and like we've moved away from that. Um, some people might say that there still are just as many slaves, but that's a whole nother topic. But I do think there is a linear projection of, human liberation. I mean, things like women's rights, even being, being able to participate in society like us. And that's why it's all based around consent. And then you even look at other life forms like an orca well in, um, in, uh, sea, sea world or whatever. And their fins start to sag because it's an indication of, you know, depression and just not thriving in an environment. And what it, what is that except for violating their consent and putting them in a cage, not allowing them to roam freely? Um, 
yeah, and I I could go on all, all day about this. So, what do you think so far? Yeah. I I think that it's a comforting story to think that we are on <laughs> a long march towards progress. But I'm not sure that I that I see it as an uninterrupted slope. Uh in that way when you mentioned slavery slavery had actually been banned in the western world for several centuries before the new world was discovered and then the um you know the, the catholic church had banned it but they um they changed their their tune on Basically, in, in 1492, they they announced, oh, it, it actually turns out that God was only talking about white people when, when he said that. <laughs> and so the, the sugar trade uh, revived the practice of slavery when it had been extinct for centuries. And um, I don't know, there's, there's a number of things where I... I think that humanity moves in fits and starts rather than a straight unbroken line. No, and I I um, I agree. So let me put it I I like to compare it to the stock charts because you look at a stock market chart and there's constantly peaks and valleys. And so even if humanity and hum, like we've been around for thousands of years now, right? That's a shit ton of time. So even if we do have massive dips in time periods, I think there's an overall trend toward liberation. Um, yeah, May and maybe you disagree with that, but. Well, I think that it's, it's a noble pursuit and a noble goal. And I think the only danger is in thinking that we've arrived at the station. Right. Um, when there's still actually, you know, a actually still some track to go down. Uh, the, the dogmatic view that, that we're at the end of history um, is. Yeah. No, appealing. I, I definitely don't like part of my because i also believe in in purpose which is really weird for an atheist but um i think that the per part of the purpose of all of this is progression and i don't necessarily think there is an end point i think th the journey towards getting better and better is the ultimate goal well and that it's fascinating how that echoes the worldview that we were indoctrinated with as children, that improvement and progression are one eternal round. Mm. And I, I sometimes muse about the fact that the ideals that I was taught were contained within our church as a child, I found to not be available within the church the ideals themselves stayed with me mm. and so it's the very 
fact that I couldn't maintain my integrity and a belief in the historical truth claims of the church that led me away from the church. Yeah. And so it was deeper into my sense of integrity rather than as an escape from it. Yeah. Well, and I like that you brought up, you know, kind of your intuitions there, because that's kind of also another piece of information that I use as evidence. Yet another just observation that human intuition generally, like there are definitely a lot of cultural differences for certain little things and whatnot, but generally the human intuition agrees on the fundamental moral things like not killing someone, you know, not torturing all this. And obviously there's like outliers of people who, you know, we call them psychopaths. We call them evil because they don't agree with the general consensus of humanity. Yeah, that's interesting how we, I, I, this relates to, to something that Socrates asked about, um, I, I think it was Socrates in, um, asking about whether God is good, whether good is good because God says so, or whether God is good. I'm, I'm trying to. Oh, the Euthyphro dilemma. Is, yeah, the Euthyphro yeah. dilemma. Is something good because God says, or does God say it because it is good? And that's why I think ultimately, even if someone believes in God, foundationally, I feel like morality comes first. Because God is seems to be bound to a certain morality. But... Yeah. Well, I hate to cut it short because personally I could go on and on about this, but, you know, I have people in my life that sometimes like my attention and <laughs> I can't just be on my computer forever. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation and I think maybe I'd like to come back again sometime. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I thank you so much for coming. This is I knew this would be interesting just by the brief meeting I had with you. Um you're you're a very nuanced and like very open. I I don't know. It was a very fun conversa conversation for me. So I appreciate it. Yeah, it was, this has been great. All right, man. Well, I'll Thanks hit you up. Invite. Yeah, we'll definitely have you on again. Awesome. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye.